Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to our podcast, where I, Alicia Swamy, Keely Severson, and Eric Johnson are exposing mold. Today, we have a wonderful guest, Dr. Joan Bennett, a fungal geneticist from Rutgers University. Dr. Joan Winstrom Bennett has been a distinguished professor of plant biology and pathology at Rutgers University since 2006. Prior to coming to Rutgers, she was on the faculty at Tulane University, New Orleans, Louisiana for over 30 years. The Bennett Laboratory studies the genetics and physiology of filamentous fungi. In addition to mycotoxins and other secondary metabolites, research focuses on the volatile organic compounds emitted by fungi. The Bennett Lab has tested individual fungi VOCs and model systems and found that one octin 3 ol mushroom alcohol is a neurotoxin that causes growth retardation in certain plants. Dr. Bennett also has an active interest in fungal genomics and has been involved in genome projects for Aspergillus flavus, Fumigatus, Orzae, and Penicillium expansum. Dr. Bennett was Associate Vice President for the Office for the Promotion of Women in Science, Engineering, and Mathematics at Rutgers from 2006 to 2014 and continues to serve as Senior Faculty Advisor to the group. She is a past Editor-in-Chief of Mycologia, a past Vice President of the British Mycological Society and the International Union of Microbiological Societies, as well as past President of the American Society for Microbiology and Society for Industrial Microbiology and Biotechnology. She was elected to the National Academy of Sciences in 2005. Thank you again for joining us today, Dr. Bennett. We'd love to hear your story of being one of the far and few women in science during your time. It's about being a young woman in science back in the day and having a name that was the same as a 1940s glamorous movie star. And I tried to talk science to the men and they would say, oh, your name is Joan Bennett. There was a movie star named Joan Bennett, and she was a brunette, and you were a blonde. And I, I really hated that. And it, was, and it happened over and over again. So for decades, I published under my initials. And then sometimes I'd be invited to speak, and I'd show up, and there would be stunned amazement that I was not John W. Bennett or James W. Bennett or Joseph W. Bennett. I was Joan W. Bennett. Classic. Amazing. Well, we're so grateful to have you and the accomplishments that you've achieved are very admirable. And, you know, I'm sure you've had to deal with that during your career as a, as an esteemed professor going up head to head with these men, but you go girl. Yeah. Um, and you know, the, the thing is I work on a very ungendered topic, fungi. I've had enough shoulder rubbing with feminists to know that many of them believe that everything is gendered. And I, I've really given thought to how my fungal toxin that grows on corn might be gendered or, or um, you know, things like sick building syndrome, which I think is what we're going to talk about today, are gendered in the science. Now, maybe in the way they affect a population, but in the actual science of it, I don't see it. So I, I lead a double life. I do a lot of work for women in science. And I do a lot of lab work on fungi. They only meet in the place of the people who do the science. For example, over the years, my labs become more female. When I was a young assistant professor, almost everyone who worked in my lab was male. And right now, everybody's female. 
Sounds like a movie. Fun guys and fun gals. Yes. <laughs> Corny movie, but that's okay. I, I like puns. So remind me of where your interest comes from. I've been mold injured by my home, so has Keely, and Eric has had a lot of experience with mold injury, uh, especially in the military. Ah. And so, you know, we just felt like we were hitting a lot of crossroads with information. Also, getting help from doctors was kind of no. We just couldn't find what we needed when we were suffering. And so we serve a huge patient population. I mean, it's thousands of people that are kind of getting the same headway where they're not getting the correct information, the correct diagnosis, even getting help, and they're losing everything. They're losing their homes. Um, they're having to move away. You know, they lose their health. So that's basically the inspiration behind Exposing Mold is to just bring this information to the forefront, bring the experts that are out there to provide this information, and hence, here we are just having conversations with experts like you, just providing the basic information on what's happening in the environment. What are these molds and, and fungi? What are they doing? How are they affecting our environment? How are they affecting us? And what can we do to kind of mitigate those, those issues that do happen? And so that's where we're at right now. And that's why we reached out to you because you know, you have that experience and it's, it's just important to educate people so they understand a little bit more. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm not sure which part of the mold worry world you've been in contact with. And as you probably know, there's some quack element to some of the physicians who try to treat patients. There is a lot of uncertainty. Um, and for a really basic start, there's a um, a way in which physicians and, and people who are in the healthcare profession categorize disease, the international classification of diseases, international disease classification, IDC. The, the term sick building syndrome is not in there. Have you followed up on that and what its implications are? I haven't, we haven't followed up on that, but we have realized that the American Medical Association does not recognize any mold related syndromes and we have looked into the reasons why there's no validated testing, there's no set signs and symptoms. So we're familiar with some of like the red tape around around the issues that are preventing that from being recognized. The uh, World Health Organization has ratified sick building syndrome in 1976, but the um other authorities, the CDC, NIH, have failed to follow up on this. And I'm not sure they've ratified it, but it's very important to this business of naming a disease. Um, for example, if you go to a physician and they want to collect medical insurance, they have to enter a disease name in order to um, report it. And there, there are a couple of you know, ways they can get around it where they can enter names other than, you know, the mold-related illness. But this is a very big problem for physicians who believe that people are sick from mold because they want to be reimbursed, and most people are doing that by insurance. The other aspect of it is that it's very hard to collect data because if people are not giving a standard diagnostic name to a condition, and you're trying to collect data on how often it happens, there's, there's no really good way to do it in a, in a massive way. And so at a very basic level, 
this is something that, that needs to be worked. And I, I heard what you said about there's no diagnostic test or bioassay. You know, we can't go in and take some of your blood out and do a quick antibiotic test and say, oh, yes, you have this mold-related disease. But there are many diseases that get diagnosed without that. And I, I would hold up um, some of the psychiatric diseases. None of them have a biomedical test that I know of but people still get diagnosed with schizophrenia. So it doesn't require a bioassay to have a classification. And if people are interested in, in moving the needle on this, I think one of the best places that a group of interested patients and, and health professionals could work together is to get this international disease classification category made. Well, that's actually where my story comes in. I got sick in the military back in the 1970s with a toxic black mold incident. And I saw in the uh, early 1980s that a lot of people were suffering in certain buildings and they kept pointing at this black mold, but they couldn't get any belief. They couldn't get any help. And then by pure chance, I wound up in the middle of the debate with the Center for Disease Control that resulted in the creation of chronic fatigue syndrome. A couple of doctors in Incline Village called the Center for Disease Control for help with a mysterious flu-like illness that simply wouldn't go away. And I noticed that all the people that failed to recover from that flu were in sick buildings. None, oh, really? none of the doctors, none of the researchers, and this was from all over the world, who descended to study this mystery illness had any awareness whatsoever of the potential of toxic mold. So um, when I was asked to serve as a prototype to help Dr. Paul Cheney, I was asked to uh, assist as a prototype, a, a matrix for the Holmes Committee to um, develop this new chronic fatigue syndrome definition. And at first I refused because I knew that they wanted to focus on the flu-like illness, the virus. And Dr. Cheney said, well, your mold illness, your mold complaints, that doesn't matter because researchers will come and we can study the situation and work out all these details. And they never did. No researchers have ever come back to look at the sick building component of the creation of the chronic fatigue syndrome. All and why these years, do you think that is? Because viruses are all the fad. That's where the funding is. That's where the funding is. So if you write a proposal, and I have written many of them, and none of them have been funded, you can't do the science unless you have people to help you, money to, to do it. Yeah. So my plan was by serving as a tangible link between the sick buildings and this new syndrome, I would provide a um, leverage for follow-up on this. And as it turns out, a couple of years after they gave up the search and stopped looking at the origin of the syndrome completely, mold testers emerged, the remediation industry came onto the scene, the buildings were tested, and they found Stachybotrys charterum in the very room that launched this entire syndrome. And I'm going, this is what, enough evidence. What room to, is that? It was a teacher's lounge at a certain school. There were several other schools and a casino involved. And lo and behold, they found Stachybotrys in those locations as well. So by the time I saw three clusters with toxic black mold, 
I'm going, this is enough evidence that researchers should follow up on this and at least look into it. To this day, they've absolutely refused to do so. Who is they? All chronic fatigue syndrome and myalgic encephalomyelitis researchers. It's been universal. Stanford, Harvard, every institute so far has flat out refused to factor in the mold that was found. In studies of chronic fatigue. Exactly. Um, let me also mention something. Uh, you know, there are lots of molds in this world, thousands of species, mm -hmm. and people talk about toxic black mold as if it's one thing or just stachybotrys and that all of the syndromes have to do with the trichothecanes that are made by this species. I have come in contact with many people who've called me who have had their homes tested where there's plenty of mold, but it's not stachybotrys. And so to, to focus entirely on that one, I think may be too narrow, although I think it's, it's a red flag because it grows very slowly and it requires a lot of moisture. So if it's there, there's bound to be other mold too. Absolutely. But the reason why I focus on it is because that's the one that was documented. So that's the only leverage I've got. If I ask for other things that weren't reported, they can say, you have no evidence. Yeah, but it's the one that was the CDC went backwards on. And yes. so it's not only documented, but they have retracted. And so it causes that, that creates a red flag. And I, 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 I don't know the specifics of your, your search. I, I know a fair amount about published literature and not everything's in the published literature, but it's a real problem if a major government funding and medical agency has said, we've decided there's, that it's not right. <laughs> well, it's important to bring out the nature of that retraction because you're talking about the 1994 Cleveland infant pulmonary hemorrhage incident where Ruth Etzel and Dor Dearborn brought Stachybotrys into the public media, into the light for the first time. The uh, toxic mold Stachybotrys became famous as the mold, the black mold, the deadly mold, the dreaded black mold. So when people refer to the mold, that's what they're talking about. I know. And that's what I'm saying, that that, may, that is somewhat problematic. I mean, it's not, I, I happen to think that this black mold can make you sick. But the fact that so much attention was put on one mold and that lots of people are claiming that they're sick from other molds, that it may not just be this trichothecane. And by focusing on it, I think we're, we're missing a bigger picture. I'm sure there must be many contributors, but like I say, the uh, refusal to initiate any research is so profound that if we don't get our foot in the door using at least one little bit of leverage, they'll continue to deny us research forever. Well, but I, I believe during the 90s, after that case, there was a good bit of research money. I happened not to be interested in, in indoor molds at that point in time. I was working on another terrible fungal toxin called aflatoxin. And I wasn't particularly interested in indoor mold issues. And so I never applied for that money. But I know a number of scientists who did get that money. There's there's a guy at Michigan State who's, I'm blocking on his name, um, but there, there is a man at Michigan State who got a lot, millions of dollars to study the trichothecanes. 
and he did some renaming of stuff. And so you should you should know about him. I'm not trying to contradict you, but if you, it's important to know that money was spent, and there's a lot of evidence that trichothecanes can make you sick. What we don't have is the consensus of the medical community that molds in general can make you sick, and that nor do we have a a formalized name, and and that. Once the CDC retracted, much of the funding vanished. To proceed on with the nature of their retraction, when Dor Dearborn and Ruth Etzel proposed a hypothesis, a, an outline for further research of stachybotrys, they collected considerable evidence that it does cause pulmonary hemorrhage, and none of this was refuted. What the uh, Center for Disease Control basically did was say, your research is inconclusive, needs further study, and we can't draw any definite conclusions based on your work thus far. And they said, fine, let's do more research. But apparently, people treated that categorization of inconclusive as some kind of final determination that there was nothing further to research. Yeah, no, I, I understand what you're saying. Um, they, it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, legal cases where sometimes a case is one on on issues that aren't really about the the nature of the case, like Bill Cosby's out of jail, and apparently had nothing to do with with whether or not he put drugs into women's drinks or something. But he's he's nevertheless out of jail. What happened with the Cleveland case is that nobody had bothered to test those kids at the time and see the trichothecane in their bloodstream, and so we can have all this circumstantial evidence, but they went back and said, hey, we're premature. We, we can't prove what happened there. And so it's, I think a lot of people are, most people who are in the field believe that that hemorrhage was caused by trichothecanes. And uh, I even met a man at the University of Illinois. And again, I wasn't sure what we were talking about today, so I didn't um, do some of my, my, but he said he was there and he just saw these walls covered with black fungi. And there are so many species of black fungi that uh, you can look at that and go, well, this place is full of black mold. Yeah, we... but there, it was full of stachybotrys. I mean, he, he saw okay. it and then it was cultured, but apparently what they didn't do is test the children, if I understand correctly. And uh, it's, it's, it's like a lot of things in medicine and science that you have all these things you're supposed to check off. And you could say, well, that's crazy, but it's not necessarily crazy. We're not vaccinating children under 12 with the COVID vaccine yet because we haven't finished the clinical trials. We could project at the time, that the, <laughs> the testing didn't exist. The um, only, I think there's only one lab in the United States that even had the ability to test for trichothecenes at the time. That's quite possible. I know aflatoxin. I don't know trichothecenes. You're quite possible. Uh, so and basically it was a clue. It was trying to initiate an investigation and the Center for Disease Control and the medical profession ever since, and even the mold experts, have been trying to use the stance that your lack of evidence is sufficient reason to not continue on with the research. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure it's quite that simple, but I will tell you it's really hard to get funding to study these issues. I'm optimistic that by going at things in different ways, and I'm hoping that maybe by talking to you guys, we can find these different ways that we can change that picture. And one, one 
hook that I see coming along that didn't exist when when these era we're talking about is is microbiome research. We now have wonderful ways of going in and sampling what microbes are living in an indoor environment. It just wasn't there 10 years ago. And so I think that if we're going to be positive about it and not just talk about, oh, we can't do this and we can't do this and that went wrong in the past and look at what we can do, the things I see that we can do is try to convince the international disease classification system to have a mold-related illness classification so we can better collect data. And that can be done even in the absence of, of blood tests, bioassays. And second, I would like to see us put a focus on microbiome research that then could be correlated with public health. And these are doable things. I mean, we can't change the past and we can decry how hard it is. I mean, I, I've spent a lot of wasted time trying to get funding to study um, some mold issues. I'm, I'm trying to think how, instead of just complaining, we can say, okay, let's go at it this way and let's go at it that way. And it sounds like your group might be the right people to lead some of this charge. Well, my um, assertion is a little bit more than complaining. Basically, what I'm telling the uh, chronic fatigue syndrome researchers that after they gave up the search, after they stopped their investigation, we continued on and we did find good evidence for a toxic substance in association with the very sick people that they were unable to figure out. Really? What is it? The evidence was of Stachybotrys charterum. Oh, it was of trichothecans. Yes, and direct contact with the very cluster, in fact, right down to a single room, 10 teachers all getting sick in a single room, and the only substance that really fits the uh, parameters for something that could neutralize their immune function was the Stachybotrys. Wow. Did you publish it? It's in many books. It's in many newspapers. But researchers say because there was no peer-reviewed abstract, no study, official study that was done by them, that there's nothing for them to follow up on. Yeah. Well, there, there are different kinds of publication. There's the newspaper and then there are peer-reviewed science journal. And so I, I was using the science journal. Was it published in a peer-reviewed journal? It was and not. And I the citation. Okay, it was not. So in, it, they're using that as a reason not to factor this in. Who, who did the work? Because I'd love to track them down. Who, who did the, the analyses? Geometrics of Sacramento. Yeah, Jeff Hicks of Geometrics, which is a mold testing company, a fairly prominent one at the time in Sacramento, that came up, tested the schools, identified the mold, and outlined a remediation protocol, and successfully cleaned up the schools and restored them to health. Mm -hmm. And yet these are the very rooms, the very places that engendered the chronic fatigue syndrome that launched the investigation. And this factor has, has never been inserted into the discussion on what chronic fatigue syndrome well, is. Well, you know, if you have those data, let's try to publish it. Sounds good. Yeah. But, no, if you can provide the data, I, I, that's my skill is I write scientific papers. But I'd, I'd like to draw a parallel between this situation and what happened to you in your house after Hurricane Katrina, mm -hmm. where the mold testing didn't isolate a specific substance that you were interested in, something that was acting like a volatile, and you wound up having to discover it yourself because the testing at the time didn't encompass your experience. 
Well, yes, yes and no. I knew there was going to be a lot of mold in my house because New Orleans is hot and it had flooded. <laughs> and I can't begin to describe how much mold there was in post-Katrina New Orleans. And um, I did some very clumsy personal sampling just to try to find out something about the species. What happened is that because I was not feeling well and because I was protecting myself from spores, particles, and things like toxins, I shifted my way of thinking. So it's not at all what you're talking about. You know, I'm not talking about a mold toxin. I'm not talking about a, a mold um, a, a reaction to mold particles like their cell walls and everything. I'm talking about teeny tiny molecule that's, that's gas phase. And I have subsequently found that many of these molecules have lots of activity, but it's not parallel to what you're, you're talking about. It parallel in the sense that because the one octant three all wasn't known to the people who were testing, that you sort of isolated this. There was no one testing volatiles or actually toxins in New Orleans, to my knowledge. Dr. Dr. Richie Shoemaker was. Uh, did he go to New Orleans? Absolutely. He went to St. Bernard Parish and did a lot of study. Um, in fact, found stachybotrys in the outside air at levels that normally constitute a sick building syndrome scenario. Well, you know, those, stachybotrys doesn't get into the air very well. Have you ever looked at its spores? They're big and heavy. They're big and heavy, yeah. But uh, the contamination so they was so down, bad. They, it would be very unlikely to get it in an air sample. And yet they did. Because the... Um, I have never met Shoemaker. Is he approachable? Because uh, his name keeps coming up and it's always I don't a know. Friend. I don't know if he's... <laughs> I mean, I've, I've known him for 20 years. But lately he has shifted his focus to actinomycetes. And he's kind of backed away from the mold. But uh, there was a situation at the uh, Reno airport where Terminal B, people were getting sick. And when they went in for testing, the normal procedure is to compare indoor to outdoor because if you consider something to be a sick building, you look for something inside, whereas outside is considered to be better. To their surprise, they found outdoor levels of stachybotrys in the air to be higher than indoors. So we is became that published? aware. No, only in the newspapers. But they became aware at that time that there were circumstances where stachybotrys could be outdoors and something could be disturbing it. Maybe gases coming up out of a sewer system or a storm drain, something that was discharging stachybotrys into the air so that you could actually have high levels of airborne spores. Mm -hmm. And this is apparently what Dr. Shoemaker found down in St. Bernard Parish. I can tell you, I looked for Stacky in my flooded home. And uh, like in many of the cases I have met with people who were sick, there, there wasn't any evidence of it. And uh, you know, I'm just trying to give you some advice. I think by focusing so much on Stacky Botrys and one fungus, your, your, um, your reach may be too narrow. Many people who are reporting that they're sick, that's not, that not the case. And hey, I, I want, believe me, I want to help you out. And I'm, I'm interested in, in what you've done. 
I wish there were more scientific publication because without the peer-reviewed journal, we get we look like quacks. You know, we look like we're not valid scientists. And and I unfortunately I have heard a number of not very complimentary things about Dr. Shoemaker. <laughs> and, that he, and that he takes money from people and that yeah yeah that's yeah. that's fine and my research is not even remotely limited to dr shoemaker's work yeah the um dr johanning dr eckard johanning yeah, and dr chin yang at the um eastern new york, new york occupational health center were doing research into mold and bruce jarvis among others identified Stachybotrys as a particular mold of interest because it seemed to have pathogenic effects that were radiomimetic. They were unusual. They stood out from the other molds. So they did a considerable amount of research on Stachybotrys charterum, and every study found that it really did stand apart from the rest. So in their 1994 Saratoga Springs Proceedings Manual, which was essentially the Bible for the indoor air quality profession, they speculated whether Stachybotrys charterum, because of its neurotoxic properties, might be connected to this recently coined chronic fatigue syndrome. They've got several chapters dedicated to this proposition. So I approached them and said, yes, I can affirm that this particular mold is connected to chronic fatigue syndrome. We found it in the very clusters of sick people that the Center for Disease Control failed to figure out. So that's a good enough connection between this particular mold and an ICD official syndrome to establish a connection, at least to get the foot in the door for further research. So that's why I focus on stachybotrys the way I do. Yeah. Hey, it's, it's a bad mold. <laughs> and it makes a terrible toxin. No question about it. And uh, I agree with you there. I, would, I, I don't speak with quite the, the, the certainty that you do. And I'm, I'm just, um, I, I'm not sure there's a conspiracy out there to, to not understand this disease. And I have enormous empathy for people who've been made ill and are not getting heard right. But unfortunately, because people are not getting heard right, I think there are some unscrupulous healthcare workers who have, have taken advantage, many of whom have this certainty. There, there was a guy who contacted me about six months ago from Florida, and he's convinced it's endotoxin and that all these problems are endotoxin. And I've heard others like this that's interesting about the actinomycetes. Oh, it's not fungi after all, it's actinomycetes. And people really get focused on one thing. And, you know, my feeling is we don't know. Well, that's why we need to look. the issue. (laughs) We don't know. And so people who claim they know are are not helping the field. And as as a scientist who, who, you know, I want to take care of my own reputation, I think it's really important that we we recognize the limitations of our knowledge. Well, at the same time, we need to push, push the science in the best way we can. And to this purpose, I took samples of Stachybotrys and uh, took them out to a pristine location and led people into proximity to see if they could feel anything. And in fact, in the 1994 proceedings manual, 
volunteers actually took it upon themselves to do this very experiment. And sure enough, it resulted in the, the effects that they were looking for. So we have our controlled tests by volunteers who've established that this is... Uh, but was it published again? Yes. In yes. 1994, I, I feel that it's not going to help us if we keep harking back to some other time and what's not been accepted. We need to move forward and do new so, research. So how can we move forward? I think we're all on the same page and we're maybe approaching this from different thought perspectives. So my question to you would be, how can we move forward with you said that you would be interested in obtaining the data from the original testing of the school to help connect the presence of the molds there with sick building syndrome. We're really interested in doing some research that can solve chronic fatigue syndrome because this is an ICD disease that hasn't been solved. And the researchers that we try to contact, they say old evidence doesn't matter. And so now that Dr. Shoemaker is leading the way to the actinomycetes, everyone is calling out endotoxins and we're over here like, wait a minute, there were molds in these ventilation systems. This is important and the fungus is important. And so I think we all kind of have our heart in a place that wants the same thing and maybe we're just not seeing a, a way forward for all of those things. So and I, I think like in many conversations, I, I, you know, as a person who's been a professor, people use words in different ways. And we think we're communicating, and we may actually not be. You know, I may be using a word like fungus, and you're hearing it something differently, and Eric's hearing it in a different way. And that in a field where there's so much questioning of data and um, dispute about findings, it's even greater, you know, and that um, it, I, I think that people who are sick are wanting to get better. And that's, of course, a very real motivation. But if you don't even know why you're sick, it's really hard to know how to get better. And that I think that many that, that in this group of people who are saying they have chronic fatigue syndrome or sick building syndrome, um, that it's a, it's a mixed bag. And to use an example, um, back earlier in the history of medicine, a lot of the diseases, and, and we probably all read about it in books, are things like fever <laughs> or dropsy. And they're, they're, they're conditions we would now call symptoms. And so there are, we now know there are lots of things that cause fever. But if you were to read some of the old literature from hundreds of years ago, the doctor will come in and say, um, the patient has fever. <laughs> and I think that without knowing what disease entities we have, we, we may be dealing with people who have lots of diseases. And hey, I'm, I'm on your side, but I think the problem may be bigger than, than well, that's why, any of you are. That's why I stepped up to serve as a prototype for the syndrome, because as soon as more researchers got involved and they started thinking of chronic fatigue syndrome as other things, which they had no evidence for, I realized that they were going to turn this into such a confusing mess that they were never going to be able to figure it out. Yeah. Whereas if you go back to the actual CDC investigation that started it all, 
you can narrow it down to three teachers in a single room. Very specific. And what year is that? I know less about chronic fatigue than. Oh, this was um, November of 1984. One of the things that is that's the Reno case, Lake Tahoe. One of the things that's happened is chronic fatigue syndrome not being solved as people are taking the terms chronic fatigue and they're applying it to all types of illness. And it's, it has become in that way this symptom that can mean literally anything from exactly. Lyme disease to smelling paint. There's, there's a really specific immune system failure that happens when your immune system is failing any bacteria or virus that's already in your body can then take center right. stage. And that's, and that's part of, part of the failure of being able to say, this is the set signs and symptoms of all of mold illness. Exactly. Exactly. It depends, but, but we know that stachybotrys causes this immune system failure. So that's why we want to look at it. We also understand that there could be other overarching. Yeah. So if things. we could, connect see there's there's a potential for a bioassay and that here i don't know this research if there is a specific component of the immune system that has been shown to be turned off by trichothecanes that could be one of the diagnostic criteria for naming an illness and um i i think because Eric has had some association with the military. One of the best places to maybe seek funding and to do it through the, the window of microbiomes might be through the Department of Defense, which has deep pockets. I don't think, you know, I don't think NIH is, is going to cough up the money. They have, yeah. well, they, they have plenty of other diseases to study. And then with COVID, it's with so many people dying of COVID, it's even harder to get your voice heard. The Department of Defense is up to their eyeballs with moldy military housing lawsuits, so they do not want to touch this. I can promise you that. It was the uh, Army that initially funded Dr. William Croft's work in 1986 that established the toxicity of Sacchibotrys. So you think that the Department of Defense won't touch it because they have so many lawsuits? I would think they'd want to touch it because they have so we many We did a study linking... Is it the William Croft study with mycotoxicosis to chronic fatigue syndrome? I'm sorry, the, the article, wasn't that put out by the military and then they retracted that? It, wasn't, it has never been retracted. No, it's been substantiated. Sorry, could you just explain that to her? You could, you could say it more correctly than I can. The, the 1985 chronic fatigue syndrome investigation took place before there was any evidence of toxic mold in the medical literature. Nothing confirming the toxicity of the dreaded black mold existed at least not no, in the no, no, that, don't say that don't say that because you're going to get in trouble the trichothecanes were discovered in russia decades before so what you're saying is there was no they were discovered in the veterinary literature air. pardon me they were discovered in the veterinary literature that it's there there's a vast mycotoxin literature going back for years and so just just you're going to get in trouble with scientists if you say things that are that strong i'm, I'm trying to help you out oh and this so, is established this is already um written in the 1994 proceedings book the uh, mycologists of the era johanning dr chin yang jarvis Auger, the rest of them Sorensen, they uh scanned the literature and they could find like you say a lot of evidence in the veterinary literature, but nothing on human health effects. The, the first paper, peer-reviewed paper, establishing health effects of Sacchibotrys 
was by Croft Yadawara et al. in 1986, which was too late for the CDC investigation. If that had been in the literature at the time, they could have solved the mystery probably within a few minutes. And as you, know, you say, I, you, you I, talk about going I understand forward. the story differently. And, and uh, again, I, 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 you, you seem more certain than perhaps we should be. This is a terrible problem. And thinking you know the answer when so many people say we don't doesn't help us move ahead. And I, I would like nothing more than to move ahead and be able to get more research done and more attention. And I'm not as certain about the facts as you are. And I, I don't always agree with what you're saying there. And, uh, you know, I... Well, these, these aren't my So facts. I'm not going to be able to help you out if you feel like you already know what the answer is. I don't know what the answer is. It's in literature. It's already documented. No, it's not. That's the problem. That's why the CDC and all these other groups are are not believing you. <laughs> that are, but, but, I, I thought we uh, I thought we'd agreed on that. Actually, they do believe me. I've been in discussion with the head of the CDC's chronic fatigue syndrome investigation, and she is fully aware of this. She she agrees with Who me. Is that Dr. Elizabeth Unger? And she thinks that chronic fatigue is caused by trichotheques. She's aware of the mold, but because there's no peer-reviewed literature establishing this, she says there's nothing to follow up on. And I go, well, that's because you need to look at this evidence and then do that kind of study that you want. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. You know, I think we're on the same page there. That, um, But that we need the peer-reviewed study. We need to get so researchers to do the peer-reviewed study. Step? then if, if we're starting from your starting point what's our first step how what can we get to you what information can we get to you how can we partner with you the yeah. things you've been telling me about that have never been published in the peer review literature should be published would you that, be willing to help us publish those if we can document yeah if you can get the data that's what i told you that if you can get data for me like he mentioned this um company geo geomatrix Geomatrix, if yeah. they have numbers of, you know, micrograms per whatever of trichothecanes found, whatever, and symptomology of, of the patients, you know, it's, there are criteria that scientists accept. And, and it's very easy to think that there's a link between something. And, and have, have you come, let me just stop there. Have, have you come across this classic paper by um, an Englishman named Hill? on proving causality no i haven't maybe let me um make a point of sending it to you and just a little bit of history of microbiology and a little bit of history of science in microbiology um the microbiologists are very proud that they are among the first people that were able to develop criteria that would prove that this organism causes this disease you know, that we're now able to say that the tuberculosis bacterium causes TB and that the spirochete causes syphilis and that the gonorrhea, gonococcus causes gonorrhea, and a whole list of diseases. And it's done something by Cox postulates. And you go through these series of steps and you do it. And that, that's wonderful. And it transformed medicine. But there are a lot of other diseases that, um, well, to this day, we're not sure. Like, what causes pancreatic cancer? It's a real disease, has a name, blah, blah, blah. We, we don't have 
we don't have evidence of, of what causes. And then there are a bunch of things that are in between. And uh, on the cancer subject, okay, smoking. And as you know, for decades, there were, there were economic pressures to suppress the literature that there was huge evidence that smoking could cause, could cause lung cancer. When you're doing lung cancer, we can't use Koch's postulates. You're not gonna isolate a um, bacterium or a virus or a, or a fungus or a parasite that is causing this disease. You have to come up with a list of other criteria and proving causality with disease is a major philosophical medical challenge. And that what we need to do is prove causality if you want to. And, and let's say that your hypothesis is absolutely correct. Everybody with chronic fatigue syndrome has been exposed to trichothecans. How do we prove that causality? And well, the um, point of a syndrome is to study something that is not in the medical literature. So what? No, no, there no, is, no. No, a syndrome is just a word that means a bunch of things running together. No, a syndrome is an official medical document. It's a research instrument. It's coined for the purpose of delineating the evidence. Now, I, I think we have different definitions. So that's exactly what I'm talking about. Like Down syndrome. That's a perfectly yeah. good syndrome. Yeah. And we now know its cause. For years, it was just a syndrome where we didn't have a cause. It was a bunch of symptoms running together. And, yeah. I mean, and lots of words have multiple definitions, but syndrome in medicine generally means it's a bunch of symptoms happening at the same time. Yeah, a concurrency of uh, signs and symptoms that delineate the entity to be studied. Yeah, and then people get together and they say, okay, when you have all these things, we're going to call it this syndrome. So when Gary Holmes wrote the chronic fatigue syndrome definition, he outlined the uh, signs and symptoms as best he could. And it was based on a particular group of people of which I am one. And the idea was that researchers were going to look into this and find out what the cause of these signs and symptoms were. And they only looked at viruses and they weren't willing to look at any other factors such as the toxic mold. So we've got the circumstantial evidence and then we combine that with the evidence, like you say, from the Russians of the 1940s that establishes that Stachybotrys in particular has the capacity to result in immune suppression that could yeah. lead to this, this syndrome, these signs and symptoms. But because they made up their mind that they only wanted to look at viruses, they haven't been willing to factor this component into their investigation. Yeah, but again, you, you're more certain than, than I am of the history, and that, that, that's I'm sure I'm that's what, what you believe, but you're, you're more certain than I am of, of the history of chronic fatigue. And That's and, because uh, I was in the room to start the syndrome. Well, yeah, and, and, and so I guess I, I can't help you because I, oh. I'm coming at it from such a different intellectual perspective, and, and that um, I haven't made up my mind, and I think you have. And, and yeah, so as long I was, as I have this uncertainty, I'm in a different place than you are. So, so how do we get away from uncertainty? Well, I, as I said, I, I was going to, I don't think I have all of your emails, maybe I do. I was gonna send you this paper by um, Dr. Hill that is a good place to start in looking at the ways in which you 
you prove causality in the absence of being able to do like a bioassay. There are things like epidemiology. Um, and all of these things, we go back to where we were at the very beginning, cost money to do research. Hmm. And if you can't get the funding, it, it creates this. So when I began, I was feeling much more optimistic about our conversation than I was saying that I can imagine new ways to, to get government interested in, in these conditions. But if you, we go into it with you thinking we already know what it is and we just need to get the government, I don't think it'll work. Oh. And uh, I, I would, you know, and if you think it'll work, okay. But I, as, as a practicing scientist running a lab who tries to write grants, and I think I'm a pretty good scientist. I'm, I'm not as sure as you are about the, the answer. And I, you know, I, 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 it's like with religion. I often envy people who know, know the truth or know what's right. I don't. There's a lot to be learned. And I, I, I wish we, I wish that it were easier to get grant money to study the unknowns. Yeah, I went, well, I'm sorry for being as certain as I am, but since I was in the room, it's kind of, <laughs> but yeah. uh, anyway, the, uh, girls have some questions for you and perhaps you'd care to talk to them. Thank you so much for just, you know, spending your time with us. And um, I really liked what you said earlier, actually, about um, reaching out to convince the national disease classification system. And I, and I'm really excited that you even said, if we provide you with the data, you can actually <laughs> write something for yeah, us. If, if the data are publishable, you know, sometimes people think they have, really solid data and you look there and like one thing I have seen um, that's a major problem in a lot of studies is there's no control group mm. and so you have a group of people that have found something but you don't have another group that are similar that you have the same data on and in science you're you're dead in the water right there mm -hmm. and like there's a woman have you come across Irene Grant you may want to talk with her. Actually, you you guys might be much more compatible than I am, but Irene Grant does work on sick building syndrome. She's an MD. She's in New York. And I've never met her, but every now and then she reaches out to me. And uh, once many, many years ago, we were on the same consulting case, both believing that somebody was sick from, from mold. She does blood tests on people who feel they've been exposed to mold and she in these blood tests very frequently finds mycotoxins um patulin ocratoxin aflatoxin i think some trichothecanes trouble is she never tests healthy people and most of these toxins what we know about them where there is a lot of research enter through the diet and so if we haven't tested a bunch of people who are matched to find out whether ordinary Americans are walking around with fairly uh, detectable levels of these toxins in their bloodstream, you're not going to be accepted by a journal because um, there's no control group. And to me, one of the issues with, with these diseases is that, um, like a lot of things, not everybody gets it. And there are people who can walk into a moldy, room and immediately have horrible symptoms get sick and there are people who can live there for three months 
and come out just happy as a clam. You know? And not knowing this human variation and susceptibility adds a level of complication, and that's why you need a control group. Um, and that, like a lot of things, we don't all die of heart attacks. We don't all die of cancer. <laughs> and we are not all susceptible to mold. And some people are highly susceptible. And, and uh, it's very hard to know who is and who isn't. And so I, I see so much uncertainty in this field and so many unanswered questions. And yet, I deeply and profoundly believe that mold is making lots of people sick. <laughs> but I, where I differ from you is I don't think we know the answer, answers. And uh, I, as a scientist, I think it's worrisome to go in believe, believing that you already know what the answer is. Because if you haven't done the good study, um, you, you may even be biased in your results. And, you know, that's like when they test drugs, they do double blinds so that the people who set up the thing don't know the people who are collecting the data because we all are so prone to bias that we want our ideas to be right. And so if you were doing studies like this, you know, it would be good to have the, the individuals blinded and the, and the uh, test blinded so that, and have a control group so that we know that the people who were showing the levels of toxin in the blood. But I can also send you uh, Irene Grant's link and she probably will jump on this like a I'm, ton of bricks. She really, she believes it's mycotoxins. I'm, I'm familiar with her. Yeah, I've been following her work. Yeah. Basically, we were just trying to initiate a study. And yeah. in terms of my certainty about certain things, well, I'm, I'm just saying that I'm certain that there were people who got sick in a certain room and I'm certain that we found a toxic mold there. I thought that was enough to at least start a study. I think that's what's been happening um, because Eric has been everywhere. He's attended all these different symposiums and has been knocking on scientists' doors. And he's just hitting a blockade. He's not getting attention or even provided the platform to try to put these studies together. It's, it's like he... These people are just shutting the door on his evidence that he does have. And so he has been and again, who are these people? Because I mean, I, I'm afraid now I'm one of these people. I'm, I'm really interested in this. No, but we, that's why know. we reached out to you because, I, because you, you, you have this information, you have been studying this, and that's why we wanted to initiate this conversation because we want to find an ally so that way we can get the study in so that way we can have some proof to move yeah. forward so people can get treated at the end of the day we're tired of seeing people suffering yeah and that's really what it is you know we yeah, really, know people are getting sick and then they're not getting believed by the health system and it's a double whammy yeah and and as you said the 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 funding is is falling out like there's nothing to be said or or to retrieve to do the do this work so um, but let's go back to the department of defense uh Keely's, or kelly you feel to feel seeing very strongly that it's a no-go. I think it's probably one of the best potentials because if they have barracks filled with, with mold and if they have lots and lots of lawsuits, and actually I, I recently was asked to um, work on a pro bono case about some people on an army base. If, if there are many of these cases, 
I think the Department of Defense, which is an enormous bureaucracy, you can't just say, oh, DDOD won't do it. There are thousands of people in that bureaucracy. Someone there might do it. You just have to make the right connection. That's a really good suggestion, Joan. Thanks so much for that suggestion. I noticed that you mentioned that, you know, some people are so sensitized to toxic mold, they can walk in a room and feel it right away. You know, we actually... We're actually really interested in that sensitized issue because that's something that once we become very sick from toxic mold, we have observed that ourselves and our patient population does become sensitized that way. I personally think that saying we are not all susceptible to mold, you know, that's what the shoemaker crowd is doing is they're saying that you can't get sick from mold unless you're susceptible to it. And they're proving susceptibility by genetic factors. And that's the way that they're going with the research. They're trying to say, you have to have these two genes if you're susceptible to get sick from toxic mold. And then their gene tests have now showed it's actually endotoxins from the actinomycetes. It's not even mycotoxins and fungi. So the quack science is getting quackier because what started as CIRS water damage buildings from toxic mold is now from a common bacteria, according to the doctors who are heading all of this up. And they're also trying to put patient base in the framework of calling this a genetic issue. No one's having a conversation about epigenetics. No one's having a conversation about the way poison affects gene expression. No one's having a conversation about immune system failures and what happens in toxic mold when your immune system is- I'm, I'm not sure you're being, again, very broad. No one, no one, no one. Many, many, many people feel that there are there's more than two genes involved here. The immune system is incredibly complicated. And so maybe this body of research is, is doing that, but I don't think the whole body of research is, is so, um, so, so full of certainty. And I think the endotoxin crowd is one group of people who are, and again, reaching out to, to sometimes desperately ill people and saying, hey, I, I, I think it's endotoxin and if you do this and you do that, I'll make you better. I, most of the um, medical profession probably doesn't agree with that approach. So as you know, a doesn't fungal feel it's medicine, do you think that people have to have a genetic susceptibility or are there toxins so, so I don't problematic know. and virulent well, that they can oh, just cause illness? Now there are some toxins, I think, that certainly the animal literature on lots of toxins, it's like the difference between poisoning and infection. You eat enough arsenic, you're sick, you die. And now, that's independent may, of genes, is that correct? Yeah, but then people may have different um, susceptibility there. And in an animal test, there's a whole range, you know, even within the same species of how much aflatoxin it might take to kill a mouse. <laughs> but with this, where we're dealing with the immune system, and I do think that many of these problems are immune system, then it gets into genetics big time. But it's not just two genes. And you're right. When I say nobody is focusing on immune system failure, I mean, if I go to my doctor right now and I say I've been in toxic mold and now I have a problem, they're not running an immune system panel because it's not recognized by the AMA. So when I say exactly. everyone... Exactly. You can't I mean, get it covered by insurance. That's where I started. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's I, mean, where I started. I mean, the people that we're going to for help, that's what I say by everyone. It's not being recognized. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how 
hybrid fungi. I read a study that was interesting that was saying that some fungi, I think it was aspergillus, I'm not sure, when they're around certain like chemicals or pesticides, they can use that as fuel and then they start emitting different toxins. So the type of food that the fungi consumes affects the virility of the toxin. And so I'm just wondering if you've researched that or if you have a comment on that about how mold is processing other things in the environment and how that's affecting the toxins that it's producing. Yeah, well, we're using a lot of higher order terms here. And so I... I'm on uncomfortable ground. There are lots of different molds. There are lots of different toxins they can make. And yes, the, the substrate they grow on can affect those toxins. Then there's another issue that when mold <laughs> um, grows on things that are already toxic, one of the things about fungi, their, their way of life is they, their digestive systems on the outside and they put out non-specific enzymes that break things down. So depending on what they're growing on, sometimes the toxins are created outside their body by, by non-specific chemical reactions. And it's really complicated. It's, it's really complicated. And to throw that into the, into the mix with what we're talking about, I think gets us too you know, far. Maybe from we'll the, email you some of our like our first eight podcasts because it actually connects all of this together. I, I much I prefer re- a really written issue. word because podcasts take so long to listen to, and I'm not a. I don't own a television, and mm-hmm. so people who who do a lot of stuff have a hard time understanding me. I'm a good reader, so if you can send me written stuff, I'm happy to look great. at. We'll I just don't want to do podcasts. We'll send you. We'll send it to you in writing. Do you have any comment on gotation droplets released by toxic fungi? What? I don't know which say it again. Flotation droplets? Gotation droplets. Eric, do you want to pipe in? I'm go- in botany, gotation is when a plant will put out like um, a bead of fluid. Exactly. An accident. And uh, Sacchibotrys colonies produce gutation droplets, nasty black-looking droplets on the outside of the mold colony that uh, apparently are the purified toxin, often without uh, genetic material, so they're not detectable by PCR. These gutation droplets dry out, and they're very crystal, and they're very brittle, so they can fragment, and the crystalline fragments become airborne. Yeah, it's interesting that stuff that I, uh, as a mycologist, was taught to call exudate, not gutation. And uh, so it, it's a different vocabulary. Yeah, I know exactly. I mean, many fungi make these uh, fluid droplets. And uh, yeah. When these droplets are in a house from fungi being produced, can these be measured for by anything? To my knowledge, there's not much study on them, and that they often occur under particular nutritional conditions. I've seen it many times in a Petri plate. I have to say, I've never seen it in nature, (laughs) but it probably happens. I mean, it happens regularly in the high nutrition um, environment of a Petri dish. I've never seen it in nature, but probably happens out there too. (laughs) Yeah. We're really interested in your fungal um, metabolite VOCs findings, and we just wanted to maybe just learn more about that. And you know, no, yeah, I'm I'm glad you guys are, are doing this. I 
and I, I wish I could share some of your certainty. It's, as I said, I, I really do. I, I think there's so much we don't know and that it's very easy to hang on to what little we do know and then maybe make it bigger than it is. And when I say there's genetic variability, repeat, not everybody has heart disease. That's not such a terrible thing to say. And I'm not talking about two genes. I mean, some people will go to be 95 and die of pneumonia. And there are other people who are genetically susceptible to heart conditions and have a heart attack at 23. And yes, food and all that makes a difference. But I believe that in our very, very complicated genetic makeup, that some people are more susceptible to these environmental impacts than others. And it's not just a couple of genes. It's, it's thousands of genes and their variants. Not because genes are, so okay, if we're just talking about one gene, that one gene might have 10,000 variants. Mm -hmm. And then you get a copy of the gene from your mother and your father, and, and then you throw in how you were raised and what you ate and what you've been exposed to. And as you say, the epigenetic, I mean, it goes on and on and on. So I, I think there's nothing controversial in saying that people have different genetic susceptibility to mold. Yeah. We have different susceptibility to, to uh, pollen grains. But do you think that there are genetics that can be healthy in a toxic mold environment? Because that's not, like the genetic expression of a heart disease I don't think is the same thing as doctors saying, like that, that could have a lot of factors too. Oh yeah, like if you weigh 300 pounds and never exercise and you're prone to heart disease, you're gonna be in a lot worse trouble. Than if so you my question about the genetic susceptibility is, do you think that there is a genetic profile that's not susceptible to having any reaction to- I'm not gonna go that far, but I'm gonna say that there are right. some people who probably can live in a moldy environment and just think of history. Think of in history when we we didn't have nice, clean indoor environments. And I've, I've heard Southerners when I talk about my volatile thing, the old Southerners who grew up in the South before air conditioning, they said, the house always smelled moldy. We didn't get sick, you know? And that just, just think of, of the primitive conditions that many of the people on the planet Earth live in. Do you think maybe that warrants some research? Maybe of that course it does. And that some people have been getting money under the under the rubric of climate change on that, but you need to be able to go internationally and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, some people are living in very moldy environments and maybe they're getting sick, but they're not necessarily getting sick the way Americans in our, in our clean environments are. You know, we don't know. Come across that paper about the Bible, Leviticus, that's a famous one in oh, the, yes. in the yeah. mold literature. And leprosy of the house is really mold of the house. Well, yeah, I think for most of history, people have been living with more mold than, than we do. You know, we're just very passionate about the subject and we, we want to make those unknowns known. You know, that's why we pursue scientists like you and we, we, we want to find these answers and yeah. it, it's hard you're right we need funding and actually you brought up a really good point about mold in the past and, and primitive living areas and you know different type of environments and it seems that just in our speculation and also eric has a theory on this if you're interested in listening to it 
of the virulence of mold and and why it's actually becoming such a prevalent issue. Vocabulary, virulence, toxicity, not necessarily the same thing. Pathogenicity. Yeah. So virulence usually, um, it's usually used in terms of infectious diseases, mm-hmm. not in terms of these environments. I mean, just... And so what, when we're communicating, I think sometimes we've been missing each other, but that one I can pick up. When we say virulence, we mean to how aggressive the mold toxin has become. Yeah, so maybe maybe pathogenicity is a much better term. Or, or toxicity, because if you're blaming a toxin, you're, you're saying the severity of the toxicity, which isn't quite necessarily the same thing as virulence is usually used. Yeah. And, and just... Talking about talking to healthcare professionals, I hear virulence and I hear an infectious disease. Like the Delta variant of COVID uh, is is more virulent than than uh, the original one. Okay, I'm sorry about that. No, no, but I mean that's part of of what we when you're talking about things that people aren't using the words the same way, you get into trouble. Got it. All right. All right. I will keep, I will keep in mind okay, that. So, okay, go ahead. It'll be in my brain for that one. Um, but what, what, what I find really interesting, and I actually took this from your paper today that you co-authored with M. Klitsch, that the symptoms produced by these mycotoxins, such as trichothecenes, they affect almost every major system of the body. One and or the other does. No, no one does, but yeah, yeah, that, that was just one, you know, that was just one toxic metabolite from fungi. Yeah. And so if we know that this is affecting or can have the ability to affect the entire body, I would feel like this is cause for concern to actually throw more money into research into this instead of shutting it down. Because as you pointed out earlier in the 90s, yeah, you, there was funding. There, there's there was a lot of funding. Yeah, there's a lot of research that we have that we're holding on to from the 90s. But if you take a look into the literature, and I highly encourage this, when you look at the the research coming out now, um, it's very sparse. Um, And also starting in the 2000s, you're seeing a, a switch in the narrative that mold is actually not a problem. It is a problem of hysteria. A lot of people who are in the field, doctors that we've heard, we had a conversation with an investigative journalist that has done a lot of research into this. And basically, there's a lot of people that think mold and mold illness is just a quack thing. That it That's doesn't right. Exist. But this is not true. And, and so, like you said, when things happen like this, you, you throw up a big red flag in your mind. Why is the narrative now being switched when we do have a solid foundation of evidence in the 90s that... Man, mold is a problem. Even the the World Health Organization has called this the greatest masquerader because it does affect every single part of the body. And again, with the whole the, the epigenetic field, I mean, if you're in a bad environment, that could determine whether the switch for a poor gene or not comes on. So this stuff is extremely important. We don't understand why people are not taking more concern of this especially since 90% of people spend their time indoors. And if you're living in a conventional home that has sheetrock and we're living in a climate change era, I mean, all you need is a, you know, a humid environment, a water source, a food source, and these molds are, are ready to go. They're, they're ready to run. <laughs> so I know that you say that there's so many different levels and, and different molds and different things that are happening, but 
we really want to focus on this and, and at least try to hammer it out in the science so that way doctors can believe what we're saying. We can, doctors can believe their patients so they can actually get help and not, and not harmed because yeah. we're seeing this negligence, you know, and so we, we really just want to try to find someone who's interested enough. I don't know how we can do this guerrilla warfare some money or something you know how do we get the funding to push this because we really just want to help people we're very passionate about this and at some point we have to focus in on different areas to see yeah, that's right you can't do it all at one time yeah uh, you know i think eric if you have contacts with the military and if you were you know deeply involved in these chronic fatigue syndromes call in your contacts call in your the people who owe you favors and uh, that's the thing they don't want to listen to him they they think you know they don't want to go back to the evidence the original evidence of chronic fatigue syndrome they're throwing darts at a at a moving target and it, it's almost you know as if it's unsolvable to them and there's so many foundations of chronic fatigue syndrome and you know now they have um, myelagic encephalomyelitis grouped into it and there's just so much confusion around this that it, how do you find how do you find a, a base how do you find the reason why this is happening to people if well there's so much as i said if we can't even if we don't even have a disease name chronic fatigue does have a name but if we don't even have a disease name that's a place to start because you can't collect big data if you if you're not calling it something you know you you need in science you need to be able to measure things and if we don't even have a name and we might have a whole bunch of things running together, you, you can't collect the data. The uh, circumstances of the chronic fatigue syndrome are a little unusual in that it scared a lot of people. And what the Center for Disease Control did in order to diffuse some of the fear that was going on at the time is they gave the syndrome, this instrument, a really silly trivializing name. So people would look at it and think it was chronic fatigue rather than representing the actual data set, the evidence that was under scrutiny by the Holmes Committee. But if we managed to look past the name and just look at the specific evidence that uh, they were presented with, we actually have some really interesting clues, things that we can follow up on. I, I would love to, to be able to help you, but I, I repeat, I don't think it's just trichothecine. Oh, I, I don't think anybody um, ever believed it was. But because this was documented, it was our foot in the door. It was something that we can follow up on. And it turns out that certain subclasses of the satratoxins, such as the dolabellanes, atronones, are such potent inhibitors of protein synthesis, and they do consistently shut off mitosis, that this could account for why people are unable to regenerate or their immune systems fail to respond in an appropriate way when they're exposed to this particular yeah. substance. Now, there's a good bit of animal research on, on the trichothecines, you're right. Much animal research, but so far the human health studies weren't done until the Croft study of 1986. That was the first one that really established a connection between people in direct exposure to stachybotrys and these types of natural killer cell function defects. Yeah. Well, it would be good to get some more recent papers. There's been a lot of science under the, you know, that has happened since 1986. Yeah, and every and, uh, study since then has confirmed it. No, 
Trichothecanes can make you sick. I just believe lots of other things yes, do, you can. that we just don't know. And that going in thinking you know the answer doesn't help you get grant money from, from medical researchers. I wish we knew. I mean, and there are a lot of other diseases. Do we know what causes lupus? People die from lupus. I, I had all symptoms of lupus only while living in a mold building, and I almost had to get surgery on my kidneys because my bladder had but become completely blocked. I just narrowly avoided surgery, but I had symptoms of lupus for one year. And when I noticed that I was manifesting as an autoimmune presentation, I started screening my patient base at my clinic to see if they were all, all my autoimmune cases, they were all confirming long-term exposure to either a water damage space, water damage, molds. We're not just attached to trichothecenes and stachybotrys, yeah. but it's of specific interest because it was found in connection to chronic fatigue syndrome. Yeah. So it yeah. should be included in whatever is looked at. Yeah, and, and lupus can be a tricky diagnosis, but I, I, I personally believe, and I don't have scientific evidence, that these diseases are doing bad things to our immune system, but it's way more than two genes and way more complicated than anything I can begin to, to understand. Um, let, me, let me, you know, I, I do, I'm, I'm a lab scientist and I'm not a clinician and I don't see human patients and so I'm out of my comfort zone but you know I've been studying the, uh, the mold toxins and we did some interesting studies which we haven't published yet but we can kill Drosophila flies when we expose them to certain volatiles we do a lot of that and so we did some studies with some mutant fungi that were blocked in certain pathways and as predicted we found that um, the flies didn't die as much when we block certain volatile pathways. That was nice. Then we did the opposite and we got some Drosophila flies that were messed up in their immune system and were lacking an immune system. And this is a paper that I'm hoping to work on and publish in the next couple of months. We lost our effect. And the flies that didn't have certain immune systems stopped dying exactly the opposite of what we expected. I, there's no molecular evidence. My lab has been closed because of the pandemic. The student who was working on it actually is from Iraq. She's gone back to Iraq and I don't have grant money to continue it. But it was not what I was expecting. It was, and it's Under, only Drosophila flies, but it's an interesting finding. It's a very- Reminds me of uh, HIV, where when the uh, CD4, CD8 ratio collapsed so badly that they lost immune function, they'd actually improve for a while before they'd go into their final descent. Yeah. Well, here we just, they're not even dying. And so means to me, my, my clumsy hypothesis, is they're dying because of an overreaction of the immune system. And if you don't have an immune system, you don't That's good die. stuff. Yeah. But what the Drosophila flies have going for them is that you can study things gene by gene. And I probably shouldn't spend too much time trying to deal with human patients. So when a person calls me when they're sick, I always emphasize that I'm not a clinician. I'm a laboratory scientist. I'm a pretty good laboratory scientist. I'm a member of the National Academy of Sciences, and I'm proud of that. And so one of the things that I do in, in my science is I'm not as certain of, of answers as, 
as I might be, and I really like rigorous controls, and I like double blinds, and I like to do everything possible to to make the science strong and clear. And I'm never going to be working on human patients. I'd love to get money to work on mice or rats, but I haven't succeeded. So I'm probably going to stick with my Drosophila flies and my genetic tests and, and hope that down the line, people who are in patient advocacy groups can, can bring attention so that somebody who has access to human subjects can, can do better studies. We need a bioassay for the, for the trichothecine, for the mycotoxin part, we need some better bioassays for the, the sick building chronic fatigue part it would be wonderful if we had a test that could be um, used as part of a diagnostic panel. And we don't. Yeah, most, most of the mycotoxin work is done on mice, but of course, mice aren't human either. Yeah. No, mycotoxin work's been done on lots of things, been done on trout, been done on turkeys, <laughs> the list goes on and on. Is it, is it, and most of the mycotoxin work has to do with the toxins we eat, you know, and they're, they're bad. They really are bad. This is different when we're exposed through our skin or through our nostrils. It's it's harder to get as much toxin in, and that's that's one of the things that the sick building syndrome problem has going for it. It's much harder to be exposed to these <coughs> high levels of toxin when you're breathing yeah. it or it's rubbing. It's interesting it. that you say that because in a way we're able to choose what we decide to put in our mouth, right? we want to eat stuff that's usually found high amounts of mycotoxins like or molds like grains oats barley but when we're in a building and inhaling over 2,000 gallons of air per day doesn't that increase the likability of being affected by by these airborne mycotoxins well there's not very much mycotoxin in a given spore and spores are very tiny it's much easier to eat and I don't know about all mycotoxins, but a lot of mycotoxins are tasteless. And so if they're processed in your cornflakes or in your miso. Or, in referencing you know, this, what mycotoxin measurement tools are you using? Because our team was under the impression that there's really no tool or measurement in existence currently utilized that can measure the mycotoxin concentration of a home. Most people can say what's on dust, but the mycotoxin measurement device that was used in, I believe, Dr. David Strauss's research is no longer available and hasn't been shortly after he published that study. So I'm wondering, how anyone could say that there's not enough well, well, start, start. there are lots of mycotoxins so and each one has a different assay method so so when you say mycotoxin we should trichothecine patulin etc which which trichothecine there are multiple so each one has a different assay procedure for starters um, are you going to suck the spores in from the air? Are you going to do contact, whatever? And there's a paper out there. And as I said, I wasn't sure what we were going to talk about, so I didn't do my homework right. But they calculated how much mycotoxin is found in a spore and how many spores you'd have to breathe and blah, blah, blah. It's hard to, to get that amount in. Um, most, you know, we do breathe a lot of spores, but they're itsy bitsy tiny. It's easy. To, to eat a peanut butter jelly sandwich and get a lot of apple toxin. 
But if there's no way to measure mycotoxins... There's plenty of ways to measure mycotoxins. It's just you have to measure each one. Now, they're very good assays for mycotoxins. Now, is that... In they're not quick the assays, but they're very, very fine assays. And there are books on mycotoxin uh, quantification. Yeah, that's I mean, interesting because mostly from agriculture and for food stuff. But yeah, the countries have okay. Have rules. So there might be different. There might be different extraction methods from foods. I'm sorry for not being more clear. I was specifically referencing like home assessments, not not extraction. Well, what part of the home? Are you sucking spores through the air? Are you taking a piece of sheetrock? What? Where? The air. You can you can do any of those things and then use one of the methods that's out there, but it's not like there's just one mycotoxin method. I I may even have a book on. I have a lot. I I'm not working on mycotoxins now. But at one point, I have books on methodology. I mean, there are plenty of very accurate ways to measure mycotoxins. Most of them have not been used in the indoor environment, and plus, most usually indoor molds make different toxic toxins than outdoor ones and so there's some i've read some papers on on measuring that but to say that there are no studies on mycotoxin whatever no that's that's just not the case no that's um, not what i said i said that okay. the air machine that was used during david strauss's study to measure the concentration of mycotoxins indoors. Is that is that a, one of, if you give me the paper on Strauss, I can look at, I can give you a better answer. It wouldn't have been just one toxin, you know, or, or if it is one toxin, there would be a specific thing. And I don't know what machine we're talking about, but I guarantee you that there are excellent ways to measure mycotoxins, that there really are. So a human who's concerned about mycotoxins has access to ways of fully measuring all mycotoxin profiles in their house to know what they're Oh, of course at. not. No, that's what I'm telling you. Each toxin has a difficult and laborious methodology. Okay, I feel and like we're whatever saying the same thing. Maybe doing, I, I don't know what Strauss was doing, but no, we, we, and we don't even for foodstuffs, like, we don't just have this one magic chest. You can do it, but it's laborious and painful. And so um, if you send me the citation on Strauss, again, I don't know what you're talking about there. And, and I am going to have to wrap it up because I have a three-hour meeting on actually, you know, measuring toxic levels of things in the atmosphere for the Environmental Protection Agency. And I am steeped in this notion of causality. And I would love to help you, but I feel like we're not on the same way. You know what we're going to do? We are going to send you our working in, it's in the process of being written up. It's just a rough draft of Eric's theory in full that includes all of the medical history of chronic fatigue syndrome, the findings that doctors, now listen, this isn't like data. This isn't including all Dr. Cheney's published data. This is as told by Eric, but if you're really interested in the overarching environmental concerns, you may be really interested in his theory because there's a specific reason we're asking for what we're asking for. We want to test if this is what's going on in the environment, and it does lead back to an over, overarching environmental concern that could be making microbes behave in a more aggressive manner like fungi and bacteria. And that's really the heart of our work. 
So maybe we are more on the same page than we realize, and we just okay. haven't figured that out yet. Yeah, no, and and I'm happy to 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 look at the science, you know, and if 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 there's more hypothesis than science, I might back off because I I like data. Yeah, and, no, we uh, totally get it. And, um, you know, in order to have data, you have to look into it uh, to produce it, you know. I was so, just going to ask, do you see <laughs> any, like, circular argument there? Like, we can't know anything that isn't already known? And No, 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 no. But to, if you're having a hypothesis, usually then the hypothesis leads to the collection of data. 100%. And then you, you either refute or you support your hypothesis. And if you know about the philosophy of science, the current reigning theory is that you can never prove your hypothesis. You, the only thing you can do is disprove it. And so, so science is built on a series, and, and that's a whole other. <laughs> yeah. We, we don't want to go there. And the people throw the word proof around, I think, more loosely than perhaps they should. And so you can disprove your hypothesis, but you can never prove it, but you can keep strengthening it by each time you don't disprove it. And keep up the good work. There are sick people out there. Mycotoxins are making people sick and other things are making people sick. And a lot of physicians don't agree with it, but it's it's not an easy thing to, to gra grapple with. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Okay. And I, can, I just, okay. can I just plant a seed in your mind real quick before you go, yeah. my dear? Thank you so much. So. Um, just in a nutshell, Eric's theory is that nanoparticle pollution from combustion from industry is feeding microbes to allow them to become more pathogenic. Pathogenic? I, I think I'm using pathogenic. the right word. Pathogenic, yeah. Uh -huh. Pathogenic, yeah. So, so in a nutshell, that's basically what we're writing on. We're, we're not so much focused simply on the mold being a problem, but why is the mold becoming a problem? And we think it's because of pollution in the atmosphere. And that is 100% tied probably into what you are actually looking into or learning. So, you know, again, that's, that would be something that we actually would want to study is that fact more than anything else. Okay, that's a lot of facts there because there's so many microbes and so many pollutants. Remember that. You know, I mean, just think of all the pollutants in the atmosphere and think of all the microbes that exist on the planet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But and you can't you can't deny the, the, the rise in algae blooms across the world and, and freshwater systems uh, in the ocean. Everyone having a mold problem in their homes and getting really sick from it. When you look at the overall ecosystem... We have messed up this planet big time. 100% agree, 100% agree, Dr. Bennett. Okay. And we won't take any more of your time, but thank you okay. so much. Good luck to you. Okay. Yeah, thank you for having these hard okay. conversations. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. It was a wonderful conversation with Dr. Joan Bennett. We may not have seen eye-to-eye -eye on every situation, but it's good to get perspectives from scientists who are looking into this information or doing their own research into mold, mycotoxins, and fungi. Thank you again. Please like, share, comment on our content. Also check out our GoFundMe and Patreon page to keep this podcast rolling. Thank you again. We'll see you next time.